Hey, this is Behind the Tofu. The podcast that brings you Behind the Tofu, exploring underrepresented topics and issues surrounding veganism. I'm Ashley. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Generally Done. I'm Seth. You can find me on Twitter at Bolts and Bombers. All right. So uh, I guess that maybe we should just go ahead and introduce ourselves. This is our first episode, y'all. Um, as you can tell, this is a vegan podcast. So Seth, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? My name is Seth, and I am currently a college student at Rochester Institute of Technology. I'm studying environmental sustainability, health and safety. I've been vegan for eight months now, and I've just only recently gotten involved in activism. I've done a little bit with Anonymous for the Voiceless and a lot of posting and discussions on social media. And hi, I'm Ashley Berlesi Nukunen. Um, I have been vegan actually for three years. I am a second year law student at the University of Tennessee College of Law. I'm going to law school to be an animal lawyer. I am currently in a uh, representing enterprises program, essentially trying to take down the man from the inside. Uh, yeah, I guess I've done a little bit of activism, but not nearly as much as in-person activism as Seth has. A lot of it has been through clubs and stuff like that. That's me. When it comes to uh, starting this podcast, I think we both really wanted to explore a lot of different topics that often get touched upon, maybe only to the surface level within the world of uh, veganism discussions on social media and in the news to a lesser extent. And I hope to A, learn about these topics more than I already know about, as well as share this information with other people. And uh, hopefully they can learn as much as I can. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to people who are a lot, a lot more informed or passionate about some of these topics. And I hope to learn more about veganism. I mean, I've been vegan for three years, but I learn new things every day about veganism. I just want to be able to strengthen my advocacy in a societally conscious manner. Yeah, and when it comes to other perspectives, um, you know, the fact that we have, so we have this plan to um, have a new guest on every episode and potentially some non-vegans, potentially, and obviously lots of vegans as well, because they're potentially going to know things about these topics. But everyone comes at veganism from a different perspective in one way or another, whether it be culture, your history, your background, how we got into it from what channel of interest, and uh, the fact that, you know, A, we're learning new stuff every day, and B, we're going to learn from them. So we're both really passionate about this, and to strengthen our, uh, our knowledge and to be able to share that with others is pretty awesome. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you, Seth, uh, do you want to give your story real quick on why you went vegan and how your journey went? It all started back in uh, the fall of 2018 when I went to an event that was hosted by the Engineers for a Sustainable World Club at my college, where it was all about agriculture. They were talking specifically at one point about animal agriculture and its devastating impact on the environment. I was so fascinated and shocked by that and I had had mild thoughts about, you know, reducing my animal product consumption or going vegetarian, but I hadn't even considered veganism before that or at that point. And I took a really slow transitional route to going vegan. You know, I saw, I had this event and from that point on, okay, I cut out red meat in, you know, that, that day basically, because I knew, because that was the most, or that was and is the most devastating impact on the environment. That was sort of the first domino for me with all the other animal products. While I never saw any of the major vegan-related documentaries, it sort of, as I was reducing things, just me learning more about you know, the environment, my health, and ironically, the ethics for me came pretty later on. As I was going vegan, as it were, I really only saw it for myself just because, okay, I know this is healthy and I know this is doing my good part for the environment. But soon after I decided I was vegan, I realized the more importance of it outside of myself, you know, being for the animals and not doing any harm or rather reducing your harm to as much as minimal as possible. You know, like I said, I didn't watch any of the major documentaries. I didn't watch any uh, factory farm footage to shock me into going which is ironic considering we talk, we, in advocacy now, we show that a lot uh, to sort of get people to realize what's going on. But that goes back to the whole idea, okay, well, people can come at it from many different approaches. Okay, so I really honestly had a very different experience um, than Seth did, and then a lot of other vegans I know did. And I know this is so different than other people, and so I don't expect this from other people. But my first encounter with veganism was actually a friend that I worked with. And she walked up to me one day and she said, hey, 
you should go vegan. And <laughs> I was like, okay. And that was basically it. I mean, like I did, uh, it was like over, it was like overnight. Like once I decided that I was going to do it, I, I was like, okay, I did it. And I made mistakes. I mean, like I didn't know that gelatin wasn't vegan for a little bit, which if you're listening to this and you're vegan, then you're probably like, well, how did you not know that? I don't know. I'm not a very smart person sometimes. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily like take that and be like, oh, every single person needs to go vegan like the moment they find out about it. It was just something that for me, it was like, okay, well, I love the environment. I, I love the animals. I don't want to hurt anybody. Okay, I guess this is what I'm doing in my life. And at the time that I went vegan, <laughs> I actually owned a uh like a delivery restaurant out of my house was not a very legal operation let me tell you this but we did deliver food to people's houses and we served like meat and um other things animal products and i just was i guess i'd been exposed every single day i was just like looking at the food and i was like man it's kind of gross that we put this in our bodies and that was just like, I guess the final push for me. Like after, after somebody told me to go vegan, I was like, okay, it's good. The, the ethics did come later for me as well. Um, I did love the animals, but that wasn't my main reason. I told Seth this, but whenever I used to advocate when I first went vegan, <laughs> I would walk up to people and I'd be like, uh, do you love the environment? Like, do you want to know how a plant-based life, how a plant-based lifestyle can help you help the environment? <laughs> And it, uh, it, it did a, I guess it worked. I don't know. I got people to eat my muffins. So. So I want to touch upon one thing that I, I mentioned the whole gelatin thing to a friend of mine recently. So I'm Jewish and I've been raised up moderately religious, uh, although I'm not religious anymore, but so <clears throat> in Judaism, you don't eat pork. And so I, my whole life I've known that gelatin is pork fat. And so when it comes to whole, okay, you know, we come at veganism from different perspectives and all, I knew that, you didn't know that, and that's fine, you know. I, I, I had never really intentionally eaten gelatin even before going vegan, as it were. It's interesting that, you know, even, like, I might know some extra things and you might know some extra things that I didn't know. Yeah, no, the big thing that I think that uh, is so funny to me um, is that actually, like, uh, there was a long time, there were a couple months where I was, I was vegan without knowing it because um, I was so broke that I couldn't afford to buy anything except for literally black beans and tortillas and bell peppers. Um, there was a long time in my life where I was just eating beans out of bowls. Like I was eating, a, I had a bowl, I just ate black beans. And I told one of my friends in class, I was like, I can't count the amount of cans of black beans that I have bought or eaten in this year. And I wasn't even vegan yet. So I think that for me, the transition was a little bit easier because I was so dead broke for such a long time that um, I didn't have, I couldn't afford to buy meat. I looked at a $5 pack of meat and I was like, how am I supposed to pay for that? Which is funny because now I, I'll buy Miyako's mozzarella and I'll be like, oh yeah, I can justify that $9 purchase. <laughs> and so one of the things that I wanted to comment on is how, okay, so you said you had one friend that said to you, okay, you should go vegan. And so I had... I think three or maybe four uh, vegan friends in college. I'm, I'm still friends with some of them. And, but they never said once to me, you should go vegan. They were always sort of, okay, you know, just living their life. We'll, we'll talk about the whole concept of being a pushy vegan at one point or another. You know, it definitely planted even the smallest seed because I hadn't even remotely considered it before college for sure. They sort of talked to me about it occasionally when I asked about it and but they were never really imposing their views on me, contrary to the stereotype that many people think of vegans. Oh, and you know, there's a whole joke we, we hear all the time. Oh, how do you know a person is vegan? Oh, they, they can't go two minutes without telling you. Oh, that's, you know, the funniest thing about that, uh, vegans can't go two minutes without telling you that they're vegan, is that uh, I worked at a firm this summer. They didn't know I was vegan for almost an entire month. We went to lunch together and they thought that I was on some sort of weird health diet because <laughs> we would go to restaurants and I'd be like, uh, hey, are there eggs or dairy in this, in this mushroom raviolis? Like just asking questions at the, at the counter. And then I just like go sit down and I'd be like, hey, can I get this with no cheese and this with no butter and you know, whatever. Um, or I'd order a salad and nobody would question, oh, is she like vegan? It took them three weeks to be like, so why do you order like that? 
<laughs> I was like, oh, uh, I'm vegan. I've been vegan for three years. And the funniest part about all of this is that it was on my resume. It's on my resume that I'm a vegan. Like, Interesting. Why is that? Um, because I, I want to go into animal, animal law and I want to okay. go into environmental law. And I think that, um, and I have this view and it um, upsets people, but I don't think that you can be a true environmentalist if you still eat animal products. That's just how I feel about it. I know that it hurts a lot of people's feelings, but I mean, like it's the number one contributor to, to greenhouse gases in the world. So we can't really like say, Hey, like, oh, I'm an environmentalist. I, I take five minute showers. I'm, you know, you know what I'm saying? I, I take five minute showers and I also don't eat meat. I'm not trying to say I'm better than anybody, but I'm just saying like, whatever. So I feel like whenever I'm applying for things, when I put vegan on there, I'm telling them like, hey, if you have an issue with me being vegan from the get go, if you think that that's something that you find annoying about me, don't hire me because it's, <laughs> it's going to come up. <laughs> And I want to touch upon that as well for a, a second, because when I first went vegan, as it were, I was telling a handful of my friends, oh, I'm plant-based because I was afraid of the stereotype of the word vegan. And some people still are to this day. And then it didn't take too long for me to become more proud of it and more aware of the whole pass the diet stuff that we'll talk about you know, either uh, at some point. And I think it's good to, if you want to be passionate about it, to embrace it. And, and I've met a handful of vegans recently who just either don't speak up on it or just don't really talk about it at all. Or they say, oh, you know, I've tried activism a little bit and it wasn't really enough for me or I, I didn't enjoy it. And I, I think it's okay to be concerned about the stigma of the name, but you should, if you are, you should be asking yourself why. Yeah, it's a little bit like, do you, should you really care what carnists think of you? Um, I know that this, I know, I know my family who's not vegan is going to listen to this and I just want them to, I want them to know that when it comes to my activism, I don't care what you think. Uh, <laughs> it's just true. But, um, I, I, I honestly have been one of the, I've been fearless and I've been a little bit more combative in the past and I, um, I've toned that down a lot in, in my, um, day-to-day -day interactions just because people have been like have been kind of, they get tired of me talking about veganism. But I will say that at school, I talk about veganism all the time. We had a case, it, it was called Replevin for a cow. I told you about this, where there was a cow that was pregnant and I realized later, oh yeah, it's because she can't produce milk or, you know, she can't have babies. She can't produce milk, so she's worthless. It's all stupid. Anyway, we'll get, we'll get to that on a different episode, how the law treats animals, because it's really fucked up. Anyway, I have spoken up on multiple occasions about how I don't like the way that animals are treated. And it's gotten to the point where like people, you know, people have started to show me like, oh, this is what I'm eating. Oh, I didn't eat cheese today. Are you proud of me? And it's like, no, I mean, like, I'm sure I could be proud of you. But really the person that you need to be having these conversations with are the animals that you're killing every time that you eat meat. I want people to understand that you're like, whenever you're upset with us, for our activism, maybe you should consider the feelings of the animals that are getting murdered because of your consumption. And on a side note, you know, when it comes to that sort of activism and people being mad at vegans for what they say and who they are, you know, a lot of times people, other vegans will say, okay, well, veganism isn't about us. It's, it's about the animals, which is, you know, we'll get into that. And that's sort of the bottom line. And it comes down to one uh, common argument I'll hear a lot is, oh, this vegan was really rude to me, therefore I'm not gonna go vegan. What are your thoughts on that? And how many oh times have you heard God. that? Oh my God, if every single person who's ever been offended by me <laughs> refused to go vegan because of me, I'd be uh, very upset. Like, also, there are people who claim to be vegan that are racist. That doesn't mean that veganism or that, like, you know, trying to abstain from harming animals is a bad thing. So maybe we should explain what veganism is. Sounds good. Okay. So as coined by the Vegan Society of the UK and now known worldwide, veganism is a way of living that seeks to exclude as far as possible and practicable all forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing, or any purpose. I love the Vegan Society uh, definition. However, I do think that it isn't, it fails to be intersectional and a lot of people use it as an excuse to be um, a shitty person to human beings. So this is what I said. Veganism isn't just about what you eat, it's about what you do. 
It's the complete avoidance of all animal products, including the consumption of bodies, excretions, and ovum of land mammals, fish, birds, insects, and mollusks as food, skin care, clothing, or any other use. It's also the avoidance of anything that exploits animals for financial gain or human enjoyment, such as zoos, aquariums, rodeos, dog shows. It is all-inclusive, and in essence, it means that we need to leave animals the fuck alone. But I also think, I didn't write this in there, but I also think that veganism is humanitarian, and I think that it means that you don't only just avoid the exploitation of animals, you try to avoid as practicable as possible the exploitation of human animals. Humans. Anyway. Right, and I was going to touch upon that as well when it comes to upon the, the word animals. And a lot of people fail to realize that we as humans are animals as well, like you said. And, you know, just because we're doing these, this reduction of harm to non-human animals, why not also just, you know, minimize as, as far as possible your harm to humans? And that's why you'll see a lot of vegans that will go out of their way to find, you know, ethically sourced products, you know, avoiding sweatshops when possible, buying secondhand, et cetera. And sure, those are good for other reasons, but it's also minimizing harm to yeah. humans. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the whole quinoa avocado debate, debate right? People try to attack veganism saying that we're bad because we eat avocados and quinoa and those industries exploit um, migrant workers and, and they're not wrong. But I think that the main rebuttal to that is that non-vegans also eat quinoa and avocado and it's not just vegans that do that. So do you want to start on some of the history of veganism? Because a lot of people seem to think uh, today that veganism is a really new thing. I mean, the vegan society definition was only coined, well, was the term vegan, so I, I see you wrote that the term vegan was coined. Oh yeah, I don't remember when the definition was defined. Yeah, no, the, the term vegan was coined in uh, 1944 by David Watson, Donald Watson, sorry. Correct, so the term vegan, that's still relatively recent, 1944, but there's definitely aspects of life and culture in many years past that have led up to it. So do you want to touch upon some of those things? Yeah, so white veganism didn't start until much, much, much later. So also other places that don't have as much research on veganism that I really tried to delve into. So I'm not saying these only older bases of veganism, these are just the ones that I could find. So actually, if you would like to reach out to us and let us know if you missed anything in this historical, um, into this historical you know, digging, please let us know because there could be other cultures that have been vegan for forever that I don't know about. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. So we know that Hinduism and Buddhism, they, you know, just also considering that they have, there's a wide diversity in the way that people believe um, the different belief systems within Hinduism and Buddhism. So I'm re in respect of that. And also as somebody who is not necessarily Buddhist and who is not um, Hindu, I just want to say that these religions these ways of life emphasize the concept of himsa is that how you say it yes it means to not wish harm on any living creature not even to a lifeless object ahimsa is about the intent rather than the action itself it's the attitude of universal benevolence um so this we'll have a sources page on our website once the website's up so you can find out where all this stuff is from but this is from demystifying pentad i can't read that so i'm just going to go ahead and say find it on the sources page i really wish i could I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> um, many of the people who practice Hinduism and Buddhism have adopted vegetarian and vegan diets due to ahimsa. Um, although the specifics are lost to history, uh, this is a quote from Animal Ethics by Christopher Key Chapel at Loyola Marymount University. He said, although the specifics are lost to history, the most likely strong human animal relations contributed to this choice. So basically, um, up until 3000 BC, people were surrounded by animals um, and like completely surrounded by animals. They saw them everywhere. There's sculptures of them. There's people, there's humans imitating animal countenance. And they started to realize, oh, hey, like animals are similar to us. And so maybe we should treat them the same way that we treat our, you know, each other. We don't kill other humans. Why should we kill animals? Uh, why should we treat them badly? Um, so because of those things, because of the way that we started to notice how the similarities between ourselves and animals, those cultures started to move away from harming animals and became vegetarian or vegan. And the most notable animal that they used to maw or they used to um, imitate would be the tiger. So I'm going to dig into Hinduism, but do you have anything to say before I get, dig into Hinduism? 
Yeah, and I think it's really fascinating that you bring up the whole, you know, we wouldn't do this to humans, so why do we do this to animals, is we use that a lot in our activism and advocacy today. And in the contrary to that, when I have said similar things to that, I've been accused of, oh, humanizing animals, and why would you give them a life, and et cetera, et cetera. And it's frustrating because I'm not the first one to come up with this concept of not harming animals because, and having moral consistency, you know, I wouldn't harm a person intentionally, so why would I do that to an animal? Well, this is the also interesting th thing to say before I move on is that I say we wouldn't want to do these to humans. We The thing is, is as a society, as an American society, we do treat some humans like animals. There's literally children in cages. I mean, we can't say, oh, we don't do this to humans, We should, so we shouldn't do it to animals. What I'm saying is, is that we shouldn't do it to humans or animals. We shouldn't harm other people our environment, anything around us. We shouldn't be causing harm. We should be trying to reduce our mass level of harm that we bring upon the rest of the world. And that's what Ahimsa essentially is, is bring down your harm, like non-harmfulness, your harmlessness. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to have good energy, right? I guess that's what. Yeah, and you know, it's unfortunate that in the world we live in, it's not, we're not able to achieve perfection unless, you know, you live off the grid and, or that's pretty much it, as far as I can tell. But, mm -hmm. but a lot of people do see veganism as trying to be perfect because there are some misconceptions that lead to that. But we realize that, you know, A, we mess up sometimes as humans, B, and also we do contribute to some suffering somehow unintentionally in some forms that we can't avoid, be it X, Y, or Z. The thing that bothers me the most about that specifically are the people who deny becoming vegan because of the other ways that we harm people or the other ways that we put harm into the world. So they say, hey, because there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, our current system is so fucked that we can't be ethical consumers. Why should I even try? And my answer to that is try anyway, even if you believe that, um, I mean, obviously try anyway, because there's no reason to say, oh yeah, there's no ethical consumption. So we might as well not try to be ethical. We should just try to be good people to other people and good people to other animals. And the reason why I don't like that as well is because it falls under the two coke, I think that's how you pronounce it, fallacy, which is known as the appeal to hypocrisy, where basically you're saying, oh, you do or don't, this, don't do this other thing, so therefore I'm going to ignore your first claim. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it says, it's the appeal to hypocrisy, which is an informal fallacy that intends to discredit the opponent's argument by asserting that the opponent's failure to act consistently in accordance with the conclusion. Yeah, so basically they're like, hey, you should, can, you should eat meat because you also eat quinoa and they both cause harm. So you're a bad person and you should just eat meat anyway. And it's like, no, 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 no. Do you have any more else to say on that? No, I mean, we can go into logical fallacies in another episode because I think they're really be fascinating um, because uh, there's a small sect of the vegan community that really likes to debate. And there's a whole part of the world that loves to debate. And, you know, when people get into activism and advocacy, a lot of times, even myself, you know, you don't even know the first lick of debating skills or understanding fallacies and not even falling into logical fallacies yourself. And the last thing you want to do as a vegan trying to advocate for animals and such is to give the give things a bad name by falling under a fallacy or a failure in your own just debates, basically. And yeah. I think it's a really interesting topic. I think we should definitely talk that talk about that in the future. I want to make it very clear that I'm glossing over these um, these topics of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, but we will be doing separate episodes on Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, and we will be bringing in people who are part of those cultures, who understand them a little bit more in depth, who can actually talk about these topics a little bit more in depth. I'm just giving an overview and more people, uh, people who know more than me, which there are, are thousands of people who know more than me on these topics, um, will be able to come in and talk to us more about this. So be looking forward to a future episode on Hinduism, Buddhism, or Jainism, and they'll probably be separate episodes because I found pages and pages and pages of articles on veganism. And in addition to those, in addition to those, um, I definitely plan on having one about uh, Judaism. Mm -hmm. um, because we're also uh, going to do one on Islam and also on Christianity. Yeah. And so, because one of the things that I wanted to mention in terms of early religions is within the 10 commandments of Judaism, there's one that says you shall not murder. And 
Today, we fall under the issue where a lot of people don't believe that killing animals is murder. That is, most non-vegans, uh, also known as carnists, will say, okay, well, murdering animals or killing animals is not murder. So it's easy and also difficult to take old words and apply them to today because you can sort of bounce them back on both sides, which yeah. is interesting as well. It's, it, I'll be, I'm very excited for that conversation. Um, I don't know very much about Judaism, so I'm super excited to hear more about it. I grew up, I don't, I guess I could go ahead and say, since you gave your religious background, I grew up uh, in a very weird kind of situation. I was born and baptized Catholic, didn't really stay in that very long, then went to a Baptist church for a while, and then went to a Pentecostal church until I was like 14. So most of my religious upbringing was mixed Protestant Catholic. And, you know, I really don't know much about Catholicism, but I do know a lot about Protestantism. So if we, when we talk about Christianity, my perspective is going to be very Protestant centered. We might have to bring in somebody else who's a little bit less Protestant centered. So, okay. All right. So do you want to touch upon the other few religions that uh, you did not get to yet? And then we can continue on. Oh yeah. I actually wanted to go ahead and go over the more specifics when it comes to each of these. So um, Hinduism, more specifically, this is just so what uh, the same article I said before I was reading before was Animal Ethics by Christopher Key Chapel at Loyola, Loyola Marymount University. He said, through imitation of animals and yoga postures and through the telling and imagining of one's own past lives and animals, Hinduism cultivates a sense of intimacy with the other than human realm, as well as a sense of playful awe. At its core, Indian nonviolence or ahimsa arises from an emotional grounded, an emotion grounded in shared kinship, a reluctance to do harm to those beings whose place within the universe can be seen as interchangeable with one's own. I really like that because looking at the words, um, beings whose place within the universe can be seen as interchangeable with, with one's own, I like to apply that to at least the environmental philosophy because. Um, we're all on this planet together in a very grand scheme and in a very literal scheme. So why would we try and ruin the world that we live in as well as the world that they live in? Yeah, I don't think a lot of vegans, whenever somebody's like, oh, you can't be, um, you can't be vegan for environmental reasons. I think that they forget that part of the environmental um, approach of veganism is that if we destroy the world, then we're destroying the world that the animals live in as well. And so it is, it also ties into animal ethics. Um, I think that's something that gets kind of thrown under the bus whenever we're talking about, oh, you can't be vegan for environmental reasons, which I understand animals, like being vegan for the animals is the number one thing. We have to remember that being an environmentalist also includes uh, right, protecting the world for not just ourselves, but for uh, in our posterity, but also for the animals and their posterity. And one thing that I want to touch upon on that is that you don't have to be vegan to have a minimal impact on the environment. And we'll touch upon this when it comes to indigenous cultures, um, as well as off the grid living, which I want, I know we hadn't talked about that yet, but I mm -hmm. mentioned that yet as, as an idea. But I do want to talk about that because there's this guy, Rob Greenfield, who lived off the grid for a full year, grew all, grew, grew all of his own food. But because some squirrels were eating some of his plants, he had to eat them in order to survive. Therefore, he wasn't vegan, but he was like contributing absurdly minimal carbon and greenhouse gas emissions from his actions. Yes, you can be vegan in, in, for the environment in a sense, but you don't have to be vegan to have a minimal impact on the environment. Yeah, and um, I'm really excited actually to have some indigenous um, people and scholars to come and speak about their um, cultures and their relationship with veganism because we do know a few indigenous vegan people who are very, very passionate about it, but it is also very important for us to be respectful of other people's cultures and understand that our idea of way, the way we treat animals is not the same way that, the, you know, that they see animals or that they treat animals and that we need to respect indigenous cultures, even in our activism. I think that's a way that something that we fail to do a lot. Yeah. And that ties back into the whole, as far as practical and possible words of the vegan society definition that we rehash a lot in our activism because if someone has a legitimate reason that they, you know, you know, a lot of times we can criticize those reasons depending on the legitimacy of them. But when, especially when it comes to indigenous cultures, I think that would fall under the as far as practical and possible. Yeah. And I also, like I said, we can't force our definition of the way the world should be looked at 
on other people's who other people whose cultures we don't necessarily understand. I mean, if the world lived as if you know the remaining indigenous people lived today, then sure, you know, we'd have a pretty peaceful world. You know, I'm excited to talk to some people about that as well. Um, back to uh, the history, which is going to take us a while to get through. It's fine. So Buddhism, um, this is another kind of, some of it's something that I said and some of it's mixed in, so I'll let you know whenever there's a quote. Um, the Buddha has often used allegories from his past lives in order to direct people away from cruelty against animals. Uh, one example is the story of a blue bear, which rescued a hunter and nursed him back to life. The hunter exposed the bear to the king, including its whereabouts. The blue bear asked to speak to the king after he was captured and said to the king, good actions lead to happiness, selfish ones lead to disaster. Kindness is greater than cruelty. Do not strike back, but develop the fortitude of patience. If you practice these virtues diligently, you will find happiness without limit. The hunter was banished and later became aware of his own animalistic tendencies and never ate meat again. So I think what we can learn from this is that part of the reason we are drawn to veganism is that we ourselves can sense the animal within ourselves and want to protect the other, want to protect the animals because we um, ourselves are animals and we wouldn't want another species to be as domineering over us as we are to them. I think that's really interesting as well. When you talk about uh, veganism in a sense of selfishness versus selflessness, and inherently being vegan is selfless, but as humans, unfortunately, in, especially in today's society, we are just drawn to a lot of selfish actions like being materialistic and you know spending money on yourself and et cetera, and buying things or you know, eating things that taste good without worrying about the ramifications, et cetera. And it takes a lot of thinking to try and rework your mind and your attitude to no longer be selfish or be less selfish, you know, at the very least. Yeah, and also being vegan doesn't mean you're not selfish. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're getting a big head for a second, um, you might still be a very selfish person. I know that I can be selfish pretty frequently and that I am a little bit, I am materialistic to a certain degree. That's something that we all need to work on because the world that we live in now is not going to be the world that you know we live in in the future. And I don't think that we're going to have the same resources that we do now. I mean, the world is falling apart. So. When it comes to the selfishness versus selflessness, so one thing that I hear people say a lot is, while I may not be the perfect selfless person now, I am much more selfless than I was before I was vegan. And I think that's really important to say so that we're not generalizing the whole, okay, you know, if you're vegan, you're completely selfless, et cetera. Yeah. You've made that big step in your life. Yeah. It moves you towards uh, being more compassionate towards other people, being more compassionate and understanding in general to the world, um, making better choices. I think not just what, with what you have on your plate, but what you do with your life. And I think that it, it you know, it is naive to say that every vegan is that way, but I think that when you make a decision that is that selfless, um, it does lead you to make other selfless choices. And it does say something about your self-control. Because I don't think I need to ever exercise self-control to, to be vegan, but I think a lot of people do, right? A lot of people say it's, it was hard for them to give up cheese or hard for them to give up meat or hard for them to stop riding their horses. Well, when it comes to self-control, the one thing that I'll mention when it comes to specifically cheese is that a well i mean for me personally it wasn't that difficult thankfully per se mm -hmm. but rather the cheese isn't is inherently addicting no matter which way you look at it there was yeah. even a study that showed similar mental addiction properties to cheese as to cocaine and so when people say it's hard to give up cheese it's important to actually believe them i wish we could name this episode cheese cocaine <laughs> Okay, I know that I'm I'm you know bouncing around, but I think that you know that's fine. It's okay for us to have um, a little bit of conversation between these. Okay, so the next little piece um, it'll be on our sources page. I'll put this quote with the source next to it um, on our sources page. This is about Jainism, which is an I guess I'll just go ahead and it's like it's an older religion. It's been around since at least at least 350 BCE, so it's a it's a pretty old religion. And I'm gonna go ahead and talk about it for a second. This is a quote from whatever is on the sources page. I'm sorry, y'all. Jainism provides the earliest and most plaintive call for nonviolence as the basis for its religious teachings in the Akaranga Sutra, um, which was published in 350 BCE. Injurious activities inspired by self-interest lead to evil and darkness. This is what's called bondage, delusion, death, and hell. 
To do harm to others is to do harm to oneself. oneself. Thou art he whom thou intend to kill. Thou art he whom thou intend to tyrannize. We corrupt ourselves as soon as we intend to corrupt others. We kill ourselves as soon as we intend to kill others. Because of their adherence to nonviolence, all Jainas are strict vegetarians and avoid all professions that cause harm to animal life in any way. They see life, all life forms as not different, not different in essence from their own. The Akaranga Sutra proclaims, all beings are fond of life. They like pleasure and hate pain, shun destruction and like to live. They long to live. To all, life is dear. So one comment I have on that is I really like the quote where it says they like pleasure and hate pain. Because when we talk about our advocacy for animals, we, a lot of times, you know, opposition will look at the differences uh, between non-human animals and humans. And I think the best rebuttal to that is to specifically look at what that said there. They like pleasure and they hate pain. We yeah. as humans have the same quality. We like pleasure and we hate pain and we want to avoid suffering. So therefore they should too. And I think it's, it's, it's awesome to see that, you know, that wording and that ideology was, you know, known back then. Yeah, like, like it says right there, to do harm to others is to do harm to oneself. So whenever you harm somebody else, like it's not just that energy is coming back upon you. Like we are all connected. And when you harm somebody else or something else, like that has to put some sort of scar on you in some way. But the issue I see with that, at least for most non-vegans today, is because we're so separated from the food system where, you know, if you buy animal products at the store, you don't, you know, you don't automatically feel or, you know, you probably don't automatically feel like you're hurting an animal in some way, shape or form. And that is where, you know, the societal conditioning comes in to people are just so used to it and it's also normalized. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Because one of the questions I'll ask someone, and people often have varying responses to this, is, you know, could you go and kill that animal yourself? Some people say yes, some people say no. That sort of ties back to this form of violence and yeah. whether or not you feel that you're actually doing it. So <laughs> I've told Seth this, and I've told people in our, in our friend group this as well. I grew up on a farm, so whenever we eventually uh, get hate, and every single time somebody gives some sort of argument that smaller farms are less harmful, or that they're nicer to animals, or there's less, you know, suffering, blah, 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 um, I'm like, hey, listen, sure, we didn't keep them in tiny little cages, we let them run around the pasture, you know, they lived their lives happily, but we still murdered them, do you know what I'm saying? Like, we still- oh, yeah literally hung chickens by their feet and cut their heads off or put them up against something and cut their heads off, like literally killed turkeys. Um, I have killed an animal before with, you know, so I'm, what I'm saying is, is that I, I did and it traumatized me and I didn't know it was wrong at the time. And I think that we need to teach people from a young age that even though most kids do know, there are like studies that show the kids like automatically have like reverence for animal life. And it made me really sad. I had a cousin who, after he saw that didn't eat, after he saw the chickens die, would not eat uh, anything with chicken in it or anything with a bone in it because he was afraid that he was going to like, like find an eye because he knew where chicken came from. It kind of scars you when you see that kind of stuff. And it, small farms are not any better. Oh, okay. So sorry. We're, I'm continuing with the history. It's okay, guys. If you guys are really wanting Seth to talk more, there's going to be, he's going to be talking more later in the episode. So. I'm, um, I'm enjoying giving my commentary in between this because it's nice to sort of relate these things from history back to the things that we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. And that's nice to see the correlation because, you know, obviously I know that what I'm saying today, you know, in my advocacy is not the most brand new thing, but it's yeah. great to see that where it came from at the very least. Yeah. I think people forget where it came from. And that's part of the problem is that they think it's a white thing. And this is what I said. I mean, veganism arguably also has roots in Greco-Roman religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, other major religions around the world besides Buddhism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Hinduism. It also has roots in some indigenous cultures. Also, Seventh-day Adventism, which is a form of Christianity, is a vegan sect of Christianity that does interpret the Bible in a way that makes, like, makes sense of veganism, which also uses, um, kind of harks back to Ahimsa in their discussions of it, but also uses the Bible to kind of talk about it. So it's interesting. But the big thing that I wanted to, to, you know, capitalize on, and I have this written on our, my notes, and so Seth knows, 
All of this is to simply say that veganism is not a new thing. And it certainly, 1000% certainly, is not a white thing. So white culture, um, sort of starting with Percy Blythe Shelley, which if you don't know who Shelley is, you should definitely look him up. Even if you're not vegan, he's a fantastic poet and um, in general, really, really fascinating person. Um, he died really early in some sort of boat crash with another famous writer that I can't remember the name of at the moment, but he died um, in a tragic accident. But before that, he was a huge activist for veganism. He started in 1806, began to adopt strict vegetarianism on moral grounds. So his idea of vegetarianism is what veganism is currently, but they called it vegetarianism then. So he didn't consume animal products in any way, shape, or form, and he definitely didn't contribute to any sort of harm of animals. But they called it vegetarianism because vegetarianism was, the, the word vegetarian was stolen from us by people who have weak moral stands, stance. Yeah, and I, I think we'll get into that at one point uh, about vegetarians versus vegans, etc. <laughs> but I think it's, you know, interesting to see that, you know, the word strict vegetarian turned into vegan. But, you know, I understand, you know, the word had to come from something. Yeah. So yeah, vegetarianism was actually like considered, the, vegetarianism was veganism. Um, so as with everything, seems like white culture was way behind the mark in comparison to everything we've talked about. I mean, like literally white culture takes forever to catch on to everything else. And then they take it as their own. I mean, that's exactly what's happened with veganism. In 1806, Percy Blythe Shelley, as much as I love him, decided that, hey, I'm going to start talking about veganism or vegetarianism, and I'm going to tell everybody. And then all of his friends, all of his rich white friends started saying, hey, everybody, you should go vegetarian because of its health its health purposes, which we'll get into that in just a second. And so all of this stuff, right? All of these rich white people were like, hey, this is our thing. Listen to us. And so that's where the idea that veganism is a white thing came from, is that these people who began being vegan, what's eight, what's 18 plus five? 23. 2300 years after the inception of veganism, a white man said, hey, you should be vegan. And now people think 2300 years. That's insane. And you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of how, you know, in school, we're told to, hey, you know, maybe you should cite your sources. <laughs> and I don't know, even, I don't know if that would have, you know, made what he did better or worse if he mm -hmm. just cited his sources. I don't know if he necessarily, I don't know if he, if he really like straight up was like, hey, this is, my, this is a new thing. I think that he might have talked about it, but I think it was erased because people just read over things. I think the so, cultural background of it was erased. So then what do you think would have been a good way for him to go about it? Or, to, or just to not go about it at all in terms of promoting what he felt was strict vegetarianism? I think that possibly just uh, spreading the idea of Ahimsa and spreading the idea that it was um, a it was a Jainist and Buddhist and, and Hindu idea, right? The harmlessness. I think he, if he had taken it that way. But the thing is, is that he did a very white thing. It's where he took a concept that's supposed to be a, um, a lifestyle and he turned it into a diet. So we'll talk about that in a second. And that's where the idea that veganism is just the diet comes from because that's how he sold it. It's easier to market weight loss and health to white people than it is to market morality. And I'll get to that in just a second. Well, it's not very easy to market morality to anyone, honestly. Yeah, but it, it's... Whenever you've been practicing a certain level of morality for thousands of years, it's a little bit different than being in 1806, which, I mean, let's think about what was happening in England in 1806. I mean, we're talking about, like, literally the beginning of industrialization of everything, right? Like, the beginning of the 17th century was, like, when everything started to slowly crawl to, hey, we have technology now. And, um, you know, we're super colonial and um, we're imperialist. So we have a lot, lot more resources and spices and vegetables that we stole from places. Fun. <laughs> so um, there were ideas about Pythagoras. We'll go back to Pythagoras on a, a separate episode because Pythagoras's ideas, which were very, very early, it was like a Greco-Roman thing, like I said, he had ideas of vegetarianism and harmlessness um, around the same time that Buddhism, Jainism, and Hinduism did, 
but he didn't translate it to widespread cultural vegetarianism the way that those cultures did and also the way that uh, Percy Blythe Shelley did. So Percy Blythe Shelley published a a pamphlet titled A Vindication of a Natural Diet in 1813. He inspired the beginning of the England Vegetarian Society. He also, apparently, was an inspiration for Frankenstein's creature to be a vegetarian. So Frankenstein's creature was a vegetarian because of Percy Blythe Shelley. That's fascinating. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. He was dubbed the first celebrity vegan who brought vegetarianism to the playing field for Western individuals. He argued vegetarianism had both health and moral benefits. The quote, the citation for this is, in pursuit of Percy Shelley, the first celebrity vegan, an essay on meat, sex, and broccoli. Why do I feel like that would be some kind of uh, news article about veganism today still? But I feel like I feel like some news are I feel like some news article would either steal that or just use the same name because it sounds something that would be catchy in today's day and age as well. Yeah, meat, sex, and broccoli. Uh, I want to add that he was also a straight edge. So he was a straight edge vegan. We know a few of those. Didn't drink alcohol. Uh, he only drank water. He didn't do any sort of drugs. He was very straight edge. He believed in a natural life. So he said, um, "Quote." The pleasures of taste to be derived from a dinner of potatoes, beans, peas, turnips, lettuce, (laughs) (laughs) with the dessert of apples, gooseberries, strawberries, currants, raspberries, and in winter, oranges, apples, and pears is far greater than is supposed. I don't know why he had to list every every fruit and veggie (laughs) Uh, in root root that has 82 different uh, species. Talking about <laughs> oh my god! I'm so sorry, Seth. Um, some other ones that you might you might not have known about until you read this was uh, Louisa May Alcott was a was a vegan, and so was William Andrus Alcott, her husband. So I don't know if you knew that Louisa May Alcott was a vegan, and also um, if you know who Louisa May Alcott is, uh, you should. She also like anybody that she took in or that she helped, she also helped become vegan. So like she was very, very good on helping other people, but she, you know, she also like injected it into things that she wrote. So she didn't like, was an outwardly vegetarian or outwardly vegan, but she did inject it into the subconscious by writing things about it. So. Um, I think that's, that's really interesting because, you know, when it comes to advocacy, we talk about planting the seed with people rather yeah. than, you know, obviously you can't force anyone to do anything. But the idea is to plant the seed in in people and to get them to think about things. And obviously that wasn't a new concept as well. Yeah. I think this, I mean, we're talking about injecting things in the subconscious. Let's talk about the fact that like, I mean, that's what literature is. Literature is injecting ideas through and hiding them through like alternative storylines, taking storylines and like putting ideas underneath it. And I think that's why Shelley was so, he was famous for his literature and then he took, which if, if you read some of his literature and you dissect it, it's very, 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 like, vegan. Like, it's very vegan. I feel like if you read it, you'd be like, okay, all right. I get, I can see that he's a vegan here. But he directs you through that. And then he uses his writing skill to write things, or he used, sorry, his, his writing skill to write things that were really appealing and really made sense to people. So back to the um, vegetarianism in its early stages, like I've said multiple times, isn't what it is now. So vegetarianism was veganism. Um, Western culture essentially just was like, oh, we still need to eat dairy things. We need dairy things. So, uh, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but all these people that we were talking about uh, actually did not consume dairy or eggs. It was just people bastardized vegetarianism because they thought, oh, well, this isn't the same thing as eating meat. And then they basically took over the term vegetarianism. So guess what? We, being the vegans that we are, <laughs> In 1944, coined the term vegan, um, and that was uh, Donald Donald Watson. We got with a bunch of non-dairy vegetarians, and they basically decided that, hey, we need to have a separate term for us because we're different and we're special. Um, he got together with them, coined the term vegetari- vegan, and then came up with the vegan society definition that we said earlier. Do you want to go ahead and read that, that, what that is? Veganism is a way of living that exceeds to exclude as far as is possible and practicable all, all and all forms of exploitation of and cruelty animals for food, clothing, or any other purpose. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the definition that he came up with. Moving forward, after all of that, there are a bunch of different activists, but the one that I wanted to focus on a little bit, just to kind of give a taste, which we can talk about this more, uh, because Donald Watson 
that was in the 40s and 50s. Um, he started doing that sort of activism and moving forward into the 70s, right? I'm sure you can imagine that a lot of pop culture icons in the late 60s and early 70s um, began to adopt veganism because it was kind of a cool thing to do, but also, you know, they, they were trying to be, they believed in peace and love and, you know, reducing their harm, harmlessness. And they started to read literature on things like we talked about earlier with the Himza. And so one of these people um, who in the 70s, this is in 1973, like earlier than that, who started to um, become vegan and realize things about veganism was Eva Bat. Um, she was an early vegan activist who served on the Vegan Society Committee. She was a writer for The Vegan for over 20 years, and wrote two early vegan cookbooks, and wrote vegan poetry, was involved in the production of Britain's first soy milk, which is Pamel, which I'm sure a lot of English, our English friends will know about that, and was heavily involved in what we now know as beauty, beauty without cruelty. Um, and I'm only going to give part of, do you want to actually read this quote? You can see it. There are several roads to veganism and many individual views of it, but veganism is one thing and one thing only, a way of living which avoids exploitation, whether it be of our fellow men, the animal population, or the soil which we all rely for our very existence. A few are attracted to veganism at first because they desire to improve or regain their health. Others are more interested in the economic aspects, which are of great importance to everyone. Few non-vegetarians appreciate the fact that because more vegan food, vegetables, fruit, grain, nuts, seeds can be produced on an equal area of land in a given time. Veganism, if generally adopted, would not only release man from animal husbandry and all its cruelty, but many fertile acres would be freed for the abundant production of food for direct human consumption. But by far the greatest number of vegans are those who have been moved, to compassion, moved by compassion to adopt this way of living without hurting. Most have been reared on the usual mixed diet with meat, eggs, milk, and fish possibly predominating but may have been feeling for some time that this could possibly, this could not possibly be the best way to live. Then perhaps a casual visit to a cattle market or the sight of newborn calves being driven to slaughter, born and killed so that humans may drink the milk that nature provided for the calves has caused their decision to be, to be a party to such criminal practices no longer. What did you think of that quote? I really like it a lot. It touches again upon, where is it? In the earlier uh, part, a way of living that exploit, avoids exploitation, whether it be of our fellow men, the animal population, or the soil. So that ties back into the whole, you know, beyond just the animals thing and going, you know, reducing your harm to humans as well. Yeah. But I also like how it addresses the societal indoctrination that we talk about a lot today and how people are just accepted into whatever they're told. You know, people eat the usual mixed diet with what we call today the standard American diet, meat, eggs, milk, and fish, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And all it takes is just, you know, a reconsideration of your choices. Yeah. So this quote, if you want to read it, is um, in an essay by Eva Bat called Why Veganism? And it's in um, Here's Harmlessness, an anthology of Ahimsa in 1964. And another quote that I wanted to read from this. Something that I think that if you're not vegan, I really want you to think about what I'm about to say. Sudden death in the prime of life or in the lingering agony of pain and starvation in a steel trap must be as terrifying for the field mouse, stoat, or rabbit as for the hunted tiger, whale, or stag. What at first may appear to be a quick death for one creature often means a slow starvation for her young ones as well. Sometimes it's the baby or rather its skin which is coveted by man. What the parent seal feeds as she grieves over the bloody remains of her clubbed and quickly skinned pup is probably no different from the anguish of the domestic cow on losing her newly born calf. I like that a lot, especially the ending where, it's, where it says probably no different than the anguish of domestic cow. And mm -hmm. that ties into speciesism, which we'll probably do a yeah. whole episode on where the most common example in today's society is where people will show their love and compassion for, uh, you know, cats, dogs, rabbits, etc., companion animals, as we would say, or pets, as non-vegan would say, you'll treat those animals with compassion, but you won't to the animals that you decide are okay for food. And I think <laughs> that's, you know, the main issue with, with carnism and etc. I'm not saying that you can't advocate for those things. What I'm saying is, is that it's kind of hypocritical to a certain degree to advocate against certain types of animal cruelty if you're not advocating against all animal cruelty. 
Okay. I like that quote a lot too. It's really powerful. And like I said, you should definitely read, um, if you haven't read it yet, um, everybody who's listening, Why Veganism by Eva Bat. Um, I wanted to go ahead and say a last quote by Percy Blythe Shelley. It is only by softening and disgusting, disguising dead flesh by culinary preparation that it is rendered susceptible of mastication or digestion that the sight of its bloody juices and raw horror does not excite intolerable loathing and disgust. He recognized the importance of the spiritual benefits of veganism. He mostly talked about how not consuming animal products improved his health. And so like the first like vegan doctor was Dr. William Lamb. So he was like not the first one, but he was the first one, like a promoter in Western culture. He was friends with uh, Louisa May Alcott. Um, he had read the readings of Shelley. So, you know, he was like somebody who was really a big advocate for um, veganism, uh, well, vegetarians, um, not veganism, so plant-based diets. His name was, like I said, William Lamb. And this is from On the Possibility of Supporting Life on a Vegetable Diet in the Bulletin of Medical Science on October 1844. So this is a very, very old article. I'm going to read what he said. I apprehend it to be impossible for you to not know the experiences of all ages has proved that a healthy man can be perfectly nourished without using a particle of animal food. I will fearlessly assert from long experience that vegetable food is much more salubrious. Why do they use words that we don't use anymore? Salubrious? I have salubrious? never heard that word before. Uh, <laughs> I don't you know, know what salubrious means. Yeah, learn a new word today. That's pretty cool. Um, then mixed a diet in common use, in which, we, in which, however, animal matter commonly enters in the smallest proportion. Numerous instances may be cited of persons who have lived for years in good health without animal food. Yeah, I mean, that sort of ties back into one of the most commonly cited sources when discussing the health aspects of uh, a plant-based diet is that the American Dietetics Association uh, has deemed that a well-planned vegan or vegetarian diet is suitable for, for all ages. Yeah, and also I want to say this is one of the first people to say that we needed to drink purified water. So I would <laughs> trust him. <laughs> he was one of the first people to be like, hey, first off, you should drink water. And second off, you should purify it before you drink it. So <laughs> I'm just saying like uh, being somebody who said to drink a lot of water, like, you know, that's what people all the time like, you need to drink a lot of water. Like today you said, you said on Twitter that you ain't my homie if, you're, if you don't drink water. If you're not hydrated, but I, I didn't say. I'm messing with you. I'm messing with you. Um, anyway, so I think we should trust this guy, right? I mean, like, come on. He was about, he was ahead of the curve. I see no reason to trust him. There's no reason not to trust him rather based off of all that. But besides that, I mean, like he, that's this, this idea, this rhetoric, that rhetoric that we had to prove whether or not you could live healthily on it, on a plant-based diet, I think kind of warped, right? Um, because people are like, oh, you can't eat that way. You're going to die. Um, they had to disprove that. And then to people in the scientific community and to people in uh, other sorts of communities that talk about veganism, it became a diet. Um, vegetarianism and veganism became a diet and not an ethical standpoint. So. Another thing I want to add is that a lot of times when it comes to diets, it'll, you know, they'll be very specific with what you can and cannot eat. Mm -hmm. And sure, being vegan means you can't eat any animal products, and that's pretty inherent to it. But a lot of times I'll hear, you know, when it comes to like the Atkins or the early forms of keto diet or other just random fad diets that you see floating around on the internet, you know, or people will go to someone for a diet plan, per mm -hmm. se, and they'll be given specific food to eat for whatever reason it may be, and you're very restricted to that. Um, and that's not really the case with veganism, especially that when you look at the fact that there's so many different diets within being vegan, let's see if I, how, many, how many of them I can name. So there are people that are fruitarian, there are people that are raw, there are people that are, you know, high carb, low fat, there are people that are, you know, keto vegan, as, you know, as crazy as that may sound. <laughs> yeah, there are keto vegans, guys. There are whole food, plant-based vegans that eat mm -hmm. no processed food, oil, sugar, salt, etc. So like I was saying, there's many different diets within being vegan. So to generalize them all as the one diet is sort of brushing them all aside as different or as the same thing rather. So I had had some notes about this, but I want to go through, according to the Vegan Society, what they feel are the 13 most common myths about being vegan. I want to go ahead and add that I haven't heard any of these. So Correct. Number one, vegan diets are not healthy. Number two, only vegans need supplements. Number three, vegans are preachy. Number four, veganism is an eating disorder. 
Number five, vegans need to drink dairy milk to get calcium. Number six, veganism is for hippies. Number seven, which there is a whole nother world and article we've already talked about, veganism is white. Yep. Number eight, vegan diets are not suitable for, ch suitable for children, which I already said the statement from the Dietetic Association for both the British and Americans say that a well-planned vegan diet is suitable for all ages. Number yep. nine, veganism is hard. Number 10, vegan companion animal diets are dangerous. That's a whole other episode. And you can argue back and forth on that. So I don't think that's no, the- Nobody really that, knows the moment when it comes uh, to cats. When it comes to cats, people do know. Correct. I don't think it's the strongest thing to, to try and debunk. But anyways, number mm -hmm. 11, I want to talk about this one a little bit more. Uh, vegan diets make you weak. Why? First, I want to ask, why do you think that is the case? Why do you think there is this misconception of that? Um, toxic masculinity. Good. Not we'll good, talk about that right. later. <laughs> Men don't want to believe that they can give up their meat and still be strong because they've been taught their whole lives that part of their masculinity is their meat consumption and their ability to provide. Um, I mean, historically, if you think about like what have men done for women and a lot of it has to do with hunting and like traditional things. Like currently I grew up in a small town and like, girls weren't really allowed to go hunting or like weren't like if it was weird if you were a girl who hunted um and so i think that there's a lot of uh, intersectionality between masculinity and consumption so in addition to that misconception i have an article open here about 19 elite athletes who are vegan also uh handy we've got a ad on the side from violife anyways I'm just going to name off a handful I'm still of not that level vegan where I get vegan ads. Oh, wow. I guess I'm ahead of you somehow. Oh, man. Um, I'm going to name off some of these athletes. And if you're not vegan or if you're vegan, you should probably, you probably know these names. We've got Lewis Hamilton, Venus Williams, Colin Kaepernick, Kyrie Irving, Scott Jurek, Jermaine Defoe, David Hay, Fabian Delph, Hannah Teeter, the Olympic snowboarder. Chris Smalling from the Manchester United. So the list goes on. Uh, there's, in, in, even outside of sports, there's people that are, there's vegans that are into uh, bodybuilding and they do just as well, sometimes even better than uh, people in competitions or rather non-vegans. Um, one of the most commonly looked up to uh, vegan bodybuilders is Nimai Delgado. Uh, he has been, vegetarian from birth and vegan for a certain number of years. I don't know how many, but quite a while. And yeah, and you know, I understand why there's this misconception, but I think it's also a pretty bad one. And yeah, no, I think it's harmful to the vegan community for people to continue to uh, have these ideas about strength when it comes to veganism. Um, we'll do an entire episode about uh, vegan bodybuilding um, we'll have some people who are vegan bodybuilders on to talk about that. And and also the misconceptions of being able to build muscle while vegan. I mean, we have a friend, Lauren, uh, you know, Lauren, she has been eating entire blocks of tofu raw because she's trying to bulk. <laughs> and she sent me a video today of her just like crying while she's eating raw oh, tofu. No. And I was like, why don't you cook it? And she's like, I haven't had time. <laughs> Like you should have done enough to cook it, but um, there are ways to bulk while you're vegan um, without being harmful to your health. So, and um, the last misconception is veganism is boring, and I feel like we've already debunked this yeah. in uh, this episode already. But just because you're cutting out animal products doesn't mean you're boring. You know, like we said before, you add a, a lot more foods to your diet than beforehand. And the other thing when it comes to things being boring is that all seasonings that make food taste good are vegan. So, you know, if you're seasoning your chicken, steak, fish, whatever, yeah. with plants, that's what makes it not boring. Yeah, I have this seasoning called kickin' chicken, okay? It's literally just rosemary, thyme, uh, orange peel, and like garlic, and a bunch of other seasonings. It's called kickin' chicken. It's supposed to be a chicken seasoning. I promise you I use it on my tofu and put it on animals and they're like oh animals taste good no animals don't taste good plants taste good and you're putting plants on your animals to make your animal taste good just like percy Blush shelley said earlier we have to manipulate meat and cover up the harm that it causes in order to make it look edible 
You wouldn't look at a cow and be like, oh, I want to eat that cow. No, you wouldn't. Don't say you would. Are there any of the other misconceptions you would like to comment on? I think that all of these things are things we come across every day because they are com- you know, common misconceptions. I think the big thing is that v- vegans are preachy. I mean, honestly, if we weren't preachy, I mean, how could we do activism? That's all I have to say about that. So um, that's basically it for this episode, but we're going to go ahead and give some teasers on what, what's coming up in our podcast. So do you want to go ahead and list off some of your favorite topics that we're planning on doing? Sure. A few interesting ones that we had thought of were uh, food science and culinary arts in the realm of veganism and plant-based eating, the issues regarding governmental influence on animal agriculture in regards to subsidies, as well as a slaughterhouse worker's perspective and how uh, eating animals impact human rights, and forced animal products in schools, lack of plant-based options at school lunches, as well as the corporate school system as a whole monetarily being tied to animal agriculture. Yeah, um, fat phobia in the vegan movement, eating disorders in general, the, the sufficiency of the definition of veganism, animals as property under the law, and uh, Dr. Sebi, one of my favorite, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite uh, vegans, that was sarcasm. Um, Dr. Sebi, his teachings and his followers. Um, I think those are some ones that were going to be really interesting. All right. Uh, do you have anything else to say? I hope everyone who listened learned something today. I certainly did. And we look forward to having you listen again in the future. Yeah, we can't wait to uh, hear what you guys think of this episode. And um, I, I really, really enjoyed doing this. I'm excited for all the things we're going to learn about activism and veganism um, going forward. We don't know what our next episode is going to be or who our speaker is going to be, but you can find out um, who that's going to be at Behind the Tofu on Twitter. Um, and then also we will be posting on that Twitter account what our website is. I'm Ashley again. You can find me on Twitter at Generally Done. And you can find me, Seth, on Twitter at Bolts and Bombers. All right. Thank you, guys. I hope you have a wonderful day.